by the way, can I curse in this interview? Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Oh, yeah. All right. So my dad, when I first got a job, my dad asked him, you know, advice about how to how to handle having jobs. And he said, the first thing is don't, don't send any f-ing memos. You're listening to The Purple Principle and today's featured guest, Robert Elliott Smith, professor of computer science at University College London. And this is back before social media and back before email even. And the thing is, is that there's the reasoning to that is the further you get from face-to-face communication with another person, the more dangerous the communication becomes. And we all know this. It's so easy in a memo for someone to misunderstand your meaning. Uh, When you get down to a tweet, it's even worse. Even a phone conversation. You know, when you have something important to say to somebody, you go and talk to them face-to-face. And the reason is, is because there's a lot more to communication simply than symbolic communication through the written word or through the abbreviated written word in in, in Twitter. And that's because human communication is extremely complex, as is all human interaction. This is Robert Pease, host of The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of partisanship. Today's featured guest is Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, an expert on the polarizing effects of algorithms. He's published a rich, unusual, and important book on this topic entitled Rage Inside the Machine, How to Stop the Internet from Making Bigots of Us All. I'm here with staff reporter Emily Cressetti. Emily, welcome. Interesting guest today. Good to be here. And yes, very interesting guest. So it seems from reading the book, Rage Inside the Machine, Dr. Smith's quite the Renaissance computer scientist, if that makes sense. It seems to here. Uh, He's an amateur actor, a musician, and obviously a writer too, in addition to his work with artificial intelligence. Uh, Plus his book makes an homage to Salvador Dali, the surrealist painter. Not your everyday computer science homage. And plus he hails from Alabama, but has lived in London for the past 23 years. So that's an different and interesting perspective. And he does have some insights into social media and partisanship. Definitely. And not just on the dangers of uh, algorithms, but also ideas about how to avoid those polarizing traps. Great. So remind me where we're starting here. Is it right into algorithms? Not exactly. We're actually starting off with a story about a blind date in Birmingham, Alabama, like 30 years ago. But it is surprisingly relevant. Okay, well, let's hope so. Here's part one of the interview Emily and I conducted with Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, author of Rage Inside the Machine, and an expert on polarizing topics such as artificial intelligence and blind dates. So uh, back in 1987, when I was a PhD student, one of my faculty members, one of my mentors, effectively set me up on a blind day, which is a bit of a strange thing to happen at graduate school. But he had a a friend who, uh, this friend's daughter, was coming from New York to Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, I uh, wanted to make an impression on this woman, so I uh, took her to a a bar in Birmingham called Burley Earls, and we... um, There was some uh, kind of alternative bluegrass on that night, and we went and uh, had a conversation, and there were a couple of people there who were, you know, uh, locals, serious locals, and her accent and my kind of uh, appearance probably didn't settle them that much. Um, When you say accent, what kind of accent did she have? She had a New York accent. Ah, so a New Yorker in an Alabama bar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Uh, she asked me what I did at graduate school, and I told her I was working on artificial intelligence. At that time, that was a term where that not many people knew much about. 
And so I had to describe what I was doing. And uh, the people across from me were really listening in. And particularly this one gentleman, a rather large, burly gentleman was listening in. And when I got to the end of the description, he looked at me and said, Heil Hitler, pal, like that, which was really weird and a bit threatening. And we left the bar. And I don't think she was having a very good time anyway, but we we went out to the car and uh, she kind of called the evening off and said, you know, I think you're a bit morally confused about what you're doing. She didn't agree with the guy in the bar, but she thought, you know, uh, this stuff was all very questionable. And I kind of filed that away until I wrote the book, really. That's interesting, all that time. So when we asked that question, we thought you were a PhD student who fully believed in the morality of artificial intelligence. Did we get that wrong? Yeah, I think at the time, I believe, like most people probably believe, is that technology doesn't have morals, only its uses do. And um, retrospectively, I think, uh, particularly with regard to artificial intelligence, that's uh, slightly irresponsible. I think that in reality, AI is very... um, is an extension of the quantification, simplification, and generalization that uh, quantitative social sciences has done with people uh, throughout the history of science, really. And actually, quantifying people is always something that has been not very far from intolerances and bigotries. And in many ways, uh, that's the reason I make the statement that now I believe algorithms are prejudice. Now, that's not to say that I don't think AI is useful. I think AI is useful. I think AI is is powerful and can do good things for people. However, uh, I think it has to be used with appropriate caution. And I think um, currently we're seeing some very uncautious use of AI. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. So you're a computer scientist and an expert in artificial intelligence. So then why write a book? Um, I mean, it's kind of old school, uh, but seriously, why did you choose to write a printed book to tell your story? Um, I love books uh, and um, I love language. And um, one of there is a chapter in the book about language and about um, how computers perceive and in quotes, I'm making air quotes here, understand language versus the the very subtle nature of meaning for human beings and how very different those two things are. Uh, have you ever gotten a, a friend who's a foreign language speaker has said something in a foreign language on Twitter or on Facebook and you hit the translate button? What you'll basically find out is those translations are terrible. And, and the reason is, is because speech is highly idiomatic. And, and we love the premise of your book because it's common for people to think algorithms as being really complex, but your premise is they're actually too simplistic. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So yes, AI is complex in its scale and in its speed and its comprehensibility, but at its roots, it's highly simplifying. And that's the reason it can yield behavior that can be... Um, uh, simplifying of people and therefore really quite unsavory and, and in some cases dangerous. And uh, that's how you solve problems of, of doing things like uh, recommending uh, what you might buy at Amazon or uh, who you might want to date on Tinder or eHarmony. Uh, ultimately, they're about reducing people to a, a tractable number of variables and then doing computations around those. And of course, the reduction of people to a, a small number of variables is at the heart of prejudice. Uh, to prejudice means to prejudge. To prejudge means to simplify and generalize because that's how you prejudge something. So in that sense, algorithms are prejudiced. They are making simplifying and generalizing uh, 
uh, steps about things. But traditionally, when you point that simplification process at people, you um, begin to do things that might place people into very simple categories, for instance, racial categories, religion-based categories, gender-based categories, et cetera. And political categories? And political categories, indeed. You know, uh, the reality is that people aren't as simple as uh, Democrats and Republicans, that, that people's opinions about aren't that simple. But, you know, what we're in, uh, the situation we're in now is we have this algorithmically mediated media that's trying to place us into categories largely for purposes of uh, advertising. Uh, that, of course, feeds us our news that aggravates our emotions. So effectively, it's the worst kind of narrow casting. It's, uh, you know, the internet isn't broadcasting, it's narrow casting. And then people can come along and exploit those effects, as we saw in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And for our listeners, we should explain that involved Cambridge Analytica, the British firm, obtaining the private Facebook data of 80 million Americans and deploying that on behalf of the surprising Trump victory over Clinton in 2016. So speaking of Facebook, uh, it was interesting the point you made that algorithms feed the wisdom of the crowd back to the crowd and don't weave expertise into the dialogue. Can you talk a little bit about that feedback? Yeah, uh, back in the 19, late 1960s, uh, through the 1970s and into the 80s a bit, uh, there was something called expert systems, which is basically rule-based AI, where they tried to take the knowledge of, of experts and put it into a set of rules and then have programs that acted like experts by executing these rules. It largely didn't work because it turns out that extracting the information from the heads of experts is both really hard and extremely expensive. The new AI, as stuff that people would call neural networks and deep learning, largely those techniques are... Um, about statistics and uh, gathering big data to drive statistics is largely free. Some of us even pay for our data to be harvested. So uh, effectively, that's a much more economically feasible form of AI, but it, uh, it has its own set of problems. Um, one of the reasons that I think populism and um, AI and AI-mediated uh, media uh, fit together so well because um, it basically says, don't trust the experts, trust the average of the common man. Uh, and, and I mean, look, I'm all for democracy. I'm all for people's uh, votes to be counted. But, you know, there, one of the ways that we function as a society is by trusting people who have the time to do or know something we don't have the time to do. And if we don't have that kind of trust in other people, then we weaken our, our human abilities. And uh, that's the situation I think we're in now. I find it interesting that not only are the categories becoming more simplified through these different algorithms on different websites, but also it seems like there's a higher propensity for the users to cling to them as their identities. Um, and so, in effect, their identities and worldviews themselves become more simplified. Um, identity politics follows from populism, follows from simplification. If, if all the media you're, you're getting simplifies things, then unfortunately, we have a tendency to follow along and simplify ourselves. And in fact, the form of, um, of online media um, 
you know, encourages us to behave more like algorithms. We, we uh, like things uh, or we share things, very binary operations. Oftentimes people share things on headlines. They just see the headline and they say, oh, uh, you know, I hate Trump or I hate um, uh, Bernie Sanders and they share, uh, you know, and, and so we have these, the way that we're kind of shaping our interactions is very simplified in many ways. So we're behaving like algorithms and actually increasing the effects. And was there any kind of like turning point that I guess when you changed your mind about AI? Certainly the, uh, uh, the outcome of recent elections affected my point of view because I, I felt that uh, the influence of algorithmically mediated media, um, you know, during the 2016 election, I believe that half of Americans got their news entirely from Facebook and Facebook feeds are, uh, are arranged algorithmically. There is no editor per se. There is only the curation of algorithms. And I think that we saw some very drastic uh, shifts of beh people's behavior because of that. A lot of interesting stuff there about algorithms. And how they simplify us into categories. And rely on statistics, but not expertise. And ruin blind dates. Or at least that one. But he does have some ideas on how to get out of this polarized mess. And so here's a bit of that. And so I, I would very much advocate that uh, the big social media providers, for instance, should start investigating the idea of giving us stuff that isn't so personalized, that, that, that runs sort of counter to uh, as, as a public service to basically say, I'm going to show you news that you uh, don't usually want. Interesting. Kind of like the fairness doctrine, but resurrected for the digital age. We should explain here that the Fairness Doctrine required pretty objective news standards on TV networks licensed by the FCC. Up until 1987, when the broadcast industry and the Reagan administration teamed up to remove that requirement, citing First Amendment rights. And expecting or maybe hoping greater competition in the digital age would maintain broadcast standards. Oh, well. We'll be discussing this more with Dr. Smith and in other episodes so let's move on then to part two of our interview with Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, based on the question, how could we get less partisan both on and offline? And one of the things uh, I say to people when they ask, how can we make this better? And, and I, I basically say, make your interactions more human. Uh, you know, when you post something, try uh, to comment on it in, in as detailed a way as you can. Don't post just on headlines. It's very important to click through and understand the articles you're posting because oftentimes the headlines can be highly misleading. And uh, also when you um, try to know the people who you are sharing your their content, uh, I think that knowing the name of newspaper writers uh, is something we've all forgotten how to do. Col columnlessness used to be people we knew. Now columnists, nobody even bothers to look at their name. So going off that, uh, in your book, you say that we have abandoned unanswered questions about ourselves and our society in favor of simplified computational models. What kinds of questions are you referring to here? I think the, the message of the 21st century is that the world is a highly complex place and that effectively there is no simplified strategy that will work to 
to govern human society in an ongoing fashion. We have to hybridize. We have to look, and any good engineer, no good engineer says the solution to all problems is to use hydraulics. And oftentimes you'll, uh, in aircraft engineering, you'll have redundancies that are intentionally different technologies. You'll have a mechanical, electrical, and a hydraulic system backing one another up, particularly because if one of them fails due to something you overlooked, it won't fail in the other one because it's completely different. And a similar uh, philosophy probably holds for politics and for the governance of people is we should hybridize strategies for robustness. Great. So back to your book again uh, for a moment in, in Rage Inside the Machine. You call for changes in laws, practices, and belief systems to try and get people out of echo chambers and really mixing. But that's a pretty tall order. Could you give us some concrete actions that businesses or governments could take to start that process? Um, I think that uh, in the first instance, I think that the online media needs to be regulated in the following fashion. Um, we need to realize that Facebook, Twitter, uh, to some extent Google even, they are media companies. They're com media companies are companies that provide information for a living. That's what they are. And these are media companies, and they need media regulation. And we need to return to the idea that regulation can be appropriate and good. And and uh, so, so the first thing government could do is basically uh, – start towards that. So uh, the fact that the content is coming from lots of different people doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that it is being sent to lots of people and those people are absorbing what is effectively a broadcast content that happens to come through. Just like ABC can't broadcast overt hate speech on their nightly newscasts. So... Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and you know, now uh, Facebook really does broadcast hate speech. There's no doubt about it. They do. And, and, and the th the th I mean, I'm, hey, you know, I don't think any of the uh, major media providers are actually uh, deeply evil. I don't, I don't think that's true. I do think that uh, the goals that we've programmed them with, like, like programming an AI, the goals we've programmed these, these corporations with, may not be compatible with having an effective society. Right, which is truly scary. But then again, if you look at issues like prejudice and polarization, how much of that is the effect of a flawed paradigm and how much is bad actors manipulating that flawed paradigm? So it's really hard to say. Uh, you know, uh, here's the thing I say about Cambridge Analytica. If, if you watch uh, The Great Hack, and everyone should, I'm sure you guys have, and everyone should watch The Great Hack on Netflix, um, what made Cambridge Analytica possible is the change in the way we talk to one another. It's the fact that we do talk to one another largely through uh, algorithmically mediated media that has these very particular effects. So it is a complicated set of feedback loops uh, between people who are exploiting the fact that we now talk to one another by largely sitting at home and looking at a screen and saying like and share. But once people see that that polarization exists, they can start manipulating it. So it's this complex series of of, of feedback loops. That's our featured guest today, Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, author of Rage Inside the Machine, How to Stop the Internet from Making Bigots of Us All. He's speaking there on the need to recognize human complexity, plus how regulation of the big social media platforms might help polarization. Which kind of reminds me of Abigail Marsh's observation in episode four, 
on the fact that human beings are animals and the importance of our senses for real communication. Yep, that was a great insight. Let's play that bit for those who've not heard the episode with Dr. Abigail Marsh, psychologist and neuroscientist at Georgetown University. It's interesting seeing the disagreements among psychologists about how disruptive the switch to heavily technologically mediated communication is going to be. And, you know, we're animals. Like we really, the way that, you know, the people around us smell and sound and feel, I mean, those are all things that moderate our brain activity at a really primitive level. Um, I do think we're losing that and it kind of, kind of bums me out. So, turns out we're a little more complex than memes or emoticons. But if we're not aware of that, we can really get manipulated. Uh, Like what happened during the Brexit vote in the UK and the 2016 election here in the US. Let's hope we're a little better prepared this time. But what about our final question? Can independent-minded Americans help bridge the political and social divide? Was Dr. Smith able to address this? Indirectly, yes. But you have to remember that he's been living in the UK for 20 plus years. But he did say some interesting things about the strength of diversity and independence can bring diversity to the polar divide in the US. Here's what I mean. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that diversity is the fuel of innovation and is the fuel of robustness. And uh, effectively, when we become isolated in communities where we're all believing the same narrative, we are inflexible and that inflexibility is dangerous. Sounds promising. Let's hear our final bit of discussion with Dr. Robert Elliott Smith on the importance of diversity. We need to basically ensure that there's uh, that people hear diverse voices. And I think if we ensured that too, I think actually the tenor of debate would improve because now um, I saw this in Alabama when I was growing up is when you divide people, they'll only interact by screaming at one another in the streets. And, and I've got to say that the uh, anti-segregation busing really, this is the uh, a teaching moment in my life is, like I said, I was scared of those black kids. Uh, when I came into real contact with them, they had an effect on my life that was very positive. And uh, that's not what I expected. Uh, and I think no one would say uh, the fairness doctrine in broadcast media, which ma- mandated that uh, broadcasters were responsible for, for providing a diversity of opinions on every a licensed broadcaster back in the days of uh, old-fashioned broadcast, that was taken away in the 1980s. I, I would I defy anyone to say that the outcome has been positive. There's a difference between diversity and mixing. Sure, we have the voice of MSNBC. Sure, we have the voice of Fox News, you know, which are entirely different from one another. But they don't mix. Their audiences don't mix. So effectively, we have polar. There's a difference between polarization and diversity. Uh, and and that's really key. Uh, we have lots of different kinds of opinions, but we have walls in between them. And uh, those the, the impenetrable walls. So I wanted to ask your advice on something. Um, obviously, this is an election year and a lot of independents and unaffiliated voters are still undecided. Uh, so how do you think people should be searching for non-polarized information to help them navigate the pressing issues? Uh, I guess I'd turn that around and say, uh, how can they be propagating information better, uh, you know, which will allow everyone to see it better? And and as I said, I think the most important things you can do are um, 
don't just like and share on headlines. Uh, basically, read the actual article. Uh, try to reflect more and try to add as sophisticated a human uh, comment as you can. Try to know the authors of, of the content that you share so that you form a human relationship with them. So, so rehumanize as much as possible your interactions. And, and this is a controversial one is try to unblock people. Uh, try, you know, I know it's really hard, but uh, there I find myself there are people who I've blocked because these people are dangerously offensive, you know, that are saying really ugly things or trolling me. Those people have to be blocked. OK, I understand that. But then there are people I'd blocked in the past. who I'd blocked them because they just said something that that basically didn't fit my worldview that well. And I decided I don't want to see any of that content. Try to ease off that a bit because our studies have definitely shown that opening up the connectivity effectively allows the information not just to flow to you, but to flow beyond you. And then effectively, you're opening up the conversation in a quite realistic way. So I would advise that people uh, be more human and try to uh, open up your channels of communication to other people because you're a part of the way the network is structured. And if you change your network structure, you're changing it for many, many people, not just for yourself. And that was our featured guest today, Dr. Robert Elliott Smith. Wait a minute. Hold on here. We're not done yet. There is more to the interview. But we answered the three main questions. There's more about the blind date, though. And not much more, which, spoiler alert again, is kind of the point. Uh, so I have to ask, did you ever hear from the woman from that blind date again? Oh, no, no. I never heard from that woman ever, ever again. And no, uh, just yeah, that was that was a that was a complete dead end. She actually said she would contact me, you know, when she got more settled in, uh, and then nothing. <laughs> I wasn't sure, like, if she ended up reading your book or anything. I have no idea. I, I and I hate to say it, I don't even remember her name, uh, which is a shame. But uh, yeah, it was it was one of those dates that that lasted probably forty five minutes. So <laughs> yeah, but in a way, I guess uh, the legacy of it lasted decades, right? Indeed, indeed, and it did really make me think at the time. And it's interesting. I would have held, uh, I would have argued very strongly for the position that technology has no morals in the past, uh, that only its uses do. Uh, now I feel like we have to, we have to consider that a lot more carefully. And that really is the end of today's episode with special guest Dr. Robert Elliot Smith, professor of computer science at University College London and author of Rage Inside the Machine, How to Stop the Internet from Making Bigots of Us All. It is not, however, the end of our discussions with Dr. Smith. Based in London these days, he was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, during the height of racial tensions in the 1960s. In an upcoming episode, we'll talk to him about those experiences and how he relates them to polarization, both on and offline in society today. Here is a bit of that upcoming episode with Dr. Robert Elliott Smith. I was going to school in Birmingham during anti-segregation busing in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which was at one time the most uh, racist city in the world. So uh, at elementary school, we had black kids shipped in from uh, um, Airport Heights near Birmingham Airport. And um, these were kids who, because I grew up in a very racist background, I was really quite frightened of them. I was a bullied kid. 
And uh, surprisingly to me, when I was being bullied by other white kids, a uh, fellow student of mine, uh, one of the black students, uh, said to me uh, something that really quite was one of the most influential things that ever happened in my life. She said, you go around looking at your feet. If you don't hold your head up, you'll be beat down your whole life. And uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, and those are the, exactly the words. In our next episode, we'll turn from polarizing algorithms to polarized politics and speak with former three-term Congressman Jason Altmaier about the demise of the political center among both U.S. voters and their representatives in Congress. So you are seeing great disgust in the country with the polarization that we see all around us. Some people have chosen to disengage from the political process and just not vote and not participate. That is clearly not the right answer. But the other problem is people have left their parties. They've become disgusted and they've left the Democratic and the Republican Party and they've become independents. And now they've disenfranchised themselves in many states. They can't participate in primary elections. And what you find is if the only people who are voting in the primary are of one party, that represents the most extreme partisans that that party has to offer. Stay tuned for this and other episodes as we take a 360-degree tour of partisanship. And please check out our social media and website at purpleprinciple.com for more info and connectivity, hopefully of the non-polarizing kind. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Janice Murphy, senior editor, Emily Crosetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, Emily Holloway, research and fact-checking. Our original music, playing right now, is by Ryan Adair Rooney.